COVID-19 has turned our lives upside down. The stress is enormous. Rates of anxiety and depression, as well as alcohol and drug use, are twice those of previous years. But plenty of people are trying to fix the problem. And some say the answer is virtual. When you're thinking about getting help, what do you have available to you? And unfortunately, not much, but fortunately, there are more solutions that are flooding the marketplace. Today, we're looking at technology's role in easing what some are calling a mental health crisis, and also at the issues around privacy and profit that come with the territory. This is Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our lives. Hi, everyone. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, I think, you know, one of the big societal conversations we've really been having over the past year as we've all gone through some really traumatic times and all shared in this really, really incredibly stressful experience of this global pandemic and having to be at home and be isolated, is that discussions about mental health issues have really become a public topic of conversation. And it's kind of put a spotlight on what so many people are going through. Yeah, it's been top of mind for everyone. And We've seen a a rise in telemedicine across all fields of medicine, but um, a recent study from the Commonwealth Fund actually showed that behavioral health has led the way, which isn't really that surprising given that it's talking to someone primarily. You don't necessarily need to see them in person. So, you know, this is definitely a, a big trend that we're seeing as a result of the massive mental health need. Yeah, and it's reflected in the market. U.S. digital health companies, we're thinking of you know, names like BetterHelp and Talkspace, raised over $5 billion in the first half of 2020 because the opportunity was clear. Join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. With Talkspace, therapy is so easy, and it's just as easy as sending your therapist a message. Over 85 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds and get better sleep. The promise of online therapy is that, at least in theory, it can be cheaper, it can be more convenient for people who can do it from their home. It's not that different from the old school brick and mortar therapist business model, but the virtual delivery system for these services really can cut down on overhead and thus cut cost. Lowering the barriers to entry is exactly what our first guest, Robin McIntosh, is trying to do. She co-founded a company called Work It Health, which is basically a virtual rehab service. We work to roll out programs in various states for people suffering from all types of addiction, from opioid use disorder to alcohol use disorder to some of the process addictions like eating disorders and the like. We're not a piece of the pie. We try to provide the whole experience of treatment from e-prescribing to drug testing and some of the other things on the medical side to the psychosocial pieces of counseling, peer support, therapeutic exercises, et cetera. Could you tell me a little bit about how you and your co-founder met and how you came up with the idea for this? So my co-founder's name is Lisa McLaughlin, and we met pretty much my first day ever in the Bay Area in 2009. She's in long-term recovery. I'm in long-term recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. 
And strangely, we were sitting next to each other side by side at an AA meeting. We both were involved in, in tech companies. I from the design and dev side, and she worked for an education technology company. So I was working a lot with these digital health companies, and we were working on all these really interesting interventions from disease management control to population health, data interventions. I mean, tons of really interesting stuff. But addiction was always left behind. Why, why are only one out of 10 people who are diagnosed with the substance use disorder getting the help they need? And our two big reasons were one, affordability. When you think about 90 day, 60 day, 30 day rehabs in the desert, $45,000 price tags for one month, really expensive. Not to mention that the outcomes are very black boxed, right? Like you don't know if that rehab is going to get you well, or you're going to have to go back. And then two, accessibility. Like it is really difficult to stand up in the stream of your life and say, I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem. Hey, husband who didn't know, and my parents who didn't know, and kids and coworkers. Now I'm going to rehab. See you in 30 days. I mean, it is so much to ask somebody that's in like the darkest point of their struggle. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned that you and your co-founder, Lisa, you're both from the tech world. And yet you noticed earlier on when you started the company that that innovation that is so rampant in Silicon Valley wasn't really spilling over to addiction services to mental health. Um, Fast forward to today, we're seeing more investment in mental health startups, not just addiction services, uh, recovery services. What do you think led to that shift? I don't want to give too much of a jaded response, but one big reason is that the reimbursement laws have changed quite a bit due to the Affordable Care Act. Now you can bill for telemedicine and that's huge. That's huge for innovation. That unlocks technology, that unlocks the power of Silicon Valley to rush into a space. So insurance, you're saying insurers will pay for it today? much more so than they did five years ago, 10 years ago, especially 15 years ago. Like when I went to rehab, I went to eight different rehabs. I mean, I was just my, my parents' worst nightmare, right? (laughs) They ended up shipping me to California to Orange County. And I stayed in a rehab center for nine months. And that was the difference. It was the time. And then I got all these friends in recovery and then I got the right medication. It's just you know, it's a perfect storm of things. I think that's why treatment is so difficult. But anyway, to back up to your point, I also think the stigma is coming down. You know, more people are talking about things like anxiety and depression. More people are exposing their alcohol abuse or use or whatever you want to call it, 50 shades of that. Companies are embracing it more, you know, and and just cultural changes. So you see more of it on TV, media. I want to ask you, about the demand that you're seeing for for your app, for your service, especially now with COVID, how much more has it grown today? Yeah. So from 2019 to 2020, and COVID didn't hit, I guess, until March, April, we grew, we 5 x basically. And it's sort of a right time, right place, that work it was in. But You know, even before COVID, we were already in the opioid epidemic. So things were already broken and things were already bad. And then COVID hit and it just exploded things. And can you walk me through what a member would experience? Like typically, how would they find out about Work at Health and what would their first interaction be like? You know, you mentioned that it's not a recovery treatment is not a one size fits all kind of thing. So how do you assess what a particular member needs? 
So if I'm struggling, if I'm addicted to pain pills because I had a bad accident last year and the doctor, this is very common. This is like a huge percentage of our member population. So if I got in an accident last year, the doctor prescribes me Vicodin or another pain pill, I get addicted. um, And now I'm off to the races. Like now I'm really struggling and I'm scaring myself. What do you do? And largely you do what you do when you search for anything in 2021 um, is you Google, right? So people find us through their phones. They find us commonly more and more through the app store. They download Work It, and then they do the contemplation thing where they think about it for a long time. That's where the blog comes in. That's where our chat team comes in. We have a lot of people that just use our intercom chat and ask us questions. Hey, what's a box zone? Hey, what's Vivitrol? Hey, is this in a shot form? And when they're ready, we try as best we can to get them in either same day or next day. And this is really key too, because what's important to understand about somebody that wants to enter recovery is that that willingness is episodic. So one day you might wake up on a Monday and say, I want to get into recovery. I never want that binge drinking to happen again. That like, you know, I'm hungover, I'm sick. You call somebody, they say, we don't have an appointment. You might not come back for another two years. So you have this magical window of opportunity where you want to grab someone really quickly So addiction works 24 hours a day. We work 24 hours a day. So they meet with a nurse. When you say meet with a nurse, you mean telehealth. This is over the phone or over the laptop or whatever. All through telehealth. You meet through video with your nurse. And um, that nurse is the same nurse that will be with you the whole time. You have your same care team the whole time. You also meet with a counselor. You talk about your goals. You make a really member-centered plan. You say, these are the specific things I want to work on. So I'm curious. I know the biggest hurdles a lot of times to people entering recovery are access and, and affordability, right? And obviously having something that's entirely virtual does away with at least some of those hurdles. But at the same time, you also mentioned like what was effective for you was being in something really long term at a rehab center, right? At a facility, like share your thoughts on the pros and cons of something that's entirely virtual. Yeah. And no, this is a really good point. So what was unique about my experience in getting into recovery was that what worked for me wasn't the inpatient rehab center. It was the halfway house. Mm. I'm not even sure if they call it halfway house anymore, but transitional living where you live with other people that have committed to recovery and you have a life. You, I had a job at Starbucks, right? Like I was a barista. I was a terrible barista, but I- <laughs> Did you spell people's names right? I never spelled anyone's <laughs> names right. I never could remember any drinks. I took like long breaks, you know, but my point is that usually where you get sober is where you stay sober. So the recovery network and the recovery world that you create for yourself is really difficult to leave after you've created it. So something like an app or telemedicine allows you even more to weave the resources into your everyday life. And that's really where the magic happens. Michal, one question I'm really curious about, and which I think we'll get you know more data and answers on over time, but is whether or not this kind of therapy, this approach to therapy, virtual therapy works as well as the traditional model, or does it work better in some ways and not as well in other ways? What do you think? Yeah, it's the question. One of the things I I found out from Work It Health is that while they have not published any uh, peer-reviewed 
articles yet or research. They've done some of their own just initial research and they've showed that retention rates are higher than what the average is for, you know, for your typical in-person rehab. So while that's really promising, obviously this is early days and we still have a lot to learn about this form of virtual treatment and therapy. So our next guest has some of his own questions about this industry. His name is Hunter Walk, and he runs a venture capital firm in San Francisco called Homebrew. So as a venture capitalist, he invests money in startups that he thinks have the potential for really high growth. Hunter is a really thoughtful guy, and he writes a lot. He recently wrote on Medium about some of these questions and reservations that he has when it comes to venture capital investment in mental health and addiction recovery startups. I was really curious to hear him discuss his thinking further. I was wondering if you could just just kind of explain your thesis, your concern um, in your words. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the venture industry and entrepreneurs are fundamentally risk-seeking. You know, we're trying to invest and build businesses that have a very particular notion of the way the world could or should work and, you know, work diligently and ethically to create that. But the reality is that not every venture-backed business is going to succeed. In fact, 30 to 40% of venture-backed businesses fail after funding. And so, when those are, you know, when we're building software for a business and, you know, all of a sudden your, you know, accounting software company disappears, like that's a pain. You have to migrate to a new accounting software company. But as more and more startups have started to touch consumers in the real world, housing, healthcare, mental health and wellness, uh, I've been wrestling a little bit with what happens when those customers are exposed to the venture risk and what happens to them when those startups fail to accomplish what they set out to do? This space, mental health, doesn't seem to have gotten a ton of interest until the last few years. Why do you think it is more of a hotspot for investors more recently uh, versus several years back? Two main reasons why I think we're seeing that growth. Um, first, I think you're getting waves of entrepreneurs who grew up in an environment where talking about mental health and wellness didn't have the stigma associated with it. And so I think it's actually a really positive indicator that we have a lot of talented founders who are willing to want to spend you know, three, five, 10 years working on health and wellness addiction issues. Uh, the second is, I think in almost a reverberation to what's been successful over the last decade. If you look at people, uh, employees, executives who've made a lot of money in social media, uh, advertising, commerce, gaming, very often what they'll do is they'll emerge from that experience and they'll say, Hunter, I want to, this was great, but I want to work on something that matters. And they'll start focusing on education, health and wellness, um, climate. And so it's the uh, supply you know, of great entrepreneurs that then meets the demand of capital. So if we look at just statistically speaking, the, the rate of success and the rate of failure among venture backed startups, some of these mental health behavioral health companies are going to fail, right? I don't know if it's more than average or fewer than average, but if we said it's just average, you know, yes, at least one in three will fail. Is your take that these shouldn't be venture backed or just that there should be some safeguard, some more, you know, maybe something put in place where there's more responsible growth taking place? What What is your take? I certainly think it has more to do with responsible growth and, and sort of a 
mission-driven nature, it has to be a partnership between the founders and the investors. I, I think to say that, you know, nothing that touches mental health and wellness, you know, should be venture backed because, you know, they might fail. Well, that's true of any business. But when you have investors who are maybe meeting with an entrepreneur who's building an addiction service, what I would just ask those investors is to make sure that they know that these kinds of companies are different. And so I'd like investors to prepare themselves for a set of questions that they should be asking the entrepreneurs and they should be thinking about over the, the life of the company. How can you make sure that you are doing right by patients and making smart choices, even if in the near term, they might inhibit growth? And then the second would be, in the cases where these don't work, you know, maybe what you have to do is preserve some capital, preserve some time to properly offboard patients. You can't just close up in the middle of the night and somebody goes to their therapy app and all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't work. I, I see a therapist. I know you've you've written about how you've relied on therapy as well. And I like shuddered to think of, you know, if my therapist retired, shut her office, whatever, you would think that they would refer you to somebody else and sort of, you know, give you a heads up. What does that look like at scale? I, I think it's not unfair to ask for, you know, a digital version of that, which is, you know, where can you send me? How much notice can you give me? What is going to be done with my data? You know, is that securely transferred to a new practitioner or is that in my hands? If the company's assets are being sold, where does my data go? You know, so I think it's a, it, it touches a bunch of privacy as well as just sort of, you know, accommodation for, for where I am in my journey. You, you mentioned some of the common threads uh, among founders that are attracted to these kind of startups in the mental health space. From what you've seen so far, are there any common threads among investors? Like, is there a type of investor that's more interested in this or is it just there's financial opportunity here and, and growth and so everybody's kind of looking at it? Look, I, I think it always separates into to two buckets. Investors who come at it with a prepared mind, they have a thesis, they have some familiarity with the industry, they have a set of questions that they're likely to, to ask that are sort of use case specific. And then investors who, um, let's call them more spreadsheet investors. They're plugging a bunch of numbers into a spreadsheet to see if the risk reward, you know, is worth their investment dollar. And, you know, what I'd like them to do is look at those opportunities with an asterisk, which says there's an additional hidden cost here, which is, you know, the cost of patient service. And if you're going to invest in these companies and want to share in the upside, then you need to support the founders in the cases of where this might not work. You know, I see very, very few founders in this space who are approaching it as just a way to make money. Uh, almost every founder who's come to us with a company like this is incredibly mission-driven, incredibly thoughtful. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do from the investor side of the table is say that part of partnering with those types of founders in these types of cases is helping them think through and supporting them through the rough times, not just, you know, the successes. I think Hunter makes some really interesting points. Uh, a mental health startup is not like Instacart. It's not something that you want to just boil down to the, the profitability and the nuts and bolts. You know, that makes it tricky. On the other hand, you don't want the VC community not to invest in these companies if there can be a greater good and an opportunity to make money while helping people. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, you could see this going either way. You could see this really going wrong, like some things in tech have gone. It could also lead to a lot more innovation and more accessibility and affordability for people who need these kinds of services. Michal, so far we've been looking at this mostly from the startup point of view. 
I was curious to talk to somebody at a big company, a big employer, about how they're thinking about mental health issues and using technology to you know, reach their workforce. Cisco is one of the core companies in the tech world. Uh, their networking, hardware, and software kind of makes the internet run. And they're also a big employer. They have more than 75,000 workers around the world. And the company has really made a big effort over the past few years to protect their employees' mental health and address mental health issues. Uh, and it goes back to 2018 when the CEO of Cisco, Chuck Robbins, sent out an email to the entire company making mental health a priority. I talked to Fran Katsudis, the chief people officer of Cisco, and asked her about that. When Chuck sent that email out, what our employees did was they responded by telling us their stories. We had leaders talk to us about their own depression and how they were managing that. We had employees talk about how they were trying to support their parents. Um, we had a parent, I remember, who came forward and talked about losing, she lost her son to suicide. Um, and so they responded with their stories. And what that helped us to realize is even though we were not talking about mental health at Cisco before this on a regular basis, it was always there. So I want to fast forward to this year or this past year and the pandemic, COVID-19, which has upended everything for all of us. You know, what kind of trends have you seen from your employee base? I don't know if anyone was truly ready for what we went through in 2020. Our approach was to be transparent, um, to demonstrate listening and to increase the communication with our people. We started having weekly check-ins with our employees. We had a mental health practitioner with us who could answer questions for our employees that were really struggling. We ensured that our leaders understood that they were accountable for understanding the individual situations of their employees, who was dealing perhaps with sick family members, who was dealing with increased stress or anxiety, and to really give them the space that they needed to work through it. Do you see a, a market improvement when you're communicating more and bringing the, the workforce together with technology or in whatever form? Something that we didn't expect was that there was incredible power in seeing our leadership team in their homes, seeing family members come in and out of the frame, having pets jump on our desks as we were talking. And I think there was something about that that humanized um, the experience even more. I think the other thing that's really important from an engagement and morale perspective is that when your employees see that you're listening and, and taking their suggestions and, and actioning those, I think you get more engagement. I'm curious how you, you might or might not be using technology. I mean, you're, you're a big tech company. Is there an algorithm that might indicate this person is feeling down, you know, or if they need not only time, but maybe you find a way to make resources available to them? Or, or are you starting to apply that kind of technology to how you interact with the employees? It's interesting. We're not doing that at the individual level, but we can take something like those weekly conversations and we can run the chat and the questions through sentiment analysis. And from that, get a sense for the emotions of the employees. 
you may see one week that the sentiment is worry, or you may see another week that the sentiment is annoyance, or, you know, you could see that folks feel motivated. And as leaders, you're able to really address that. You're able to ask further questions to ensure that you understand those emotions. When people do need care or want to seek care, what is the range of therapeutic care available to your employees? And is it, you know, meaningfully expanded and different than it was a couple of years ago as a part of this overall uh, emphasis? We have something called a safe to talk space where employees can just talk about issues that they're dealing with. Perhaps they can get questions answered about where they should go for support. Or it's also a place where they tell stories. And and that's a big part of how we heal is just being able to talk. That's something that's new for us. We've been doing that now for a couple of years. Something else that's newer for us is that we recognize that people like to get support in many different ways. One of the offerings that we have is the ability to text and get support via text versus live conversation because we know that's how a subset of our employees want to reach out and get support as well. Are they texting Cisco employees or are they texting uh, mental health care? Mental health care providers. So you're clearly investing in these services. Do you calculate the cost of not providing these services? I mean, it seems like it started with Chuck Robbins sort of just thinking this might be on people's minds and it's become more institutionalized that you're being very sensitive to this. But I'm assuming you've you sort of put numbers behind this as well. The funny thing is we we haven't. Um, something that we recognize is that at Cisco, we want our employees to be at their absolute best, not for the workday, but at their absolute best. And that means that we have to provide them with the services and the programs that help them to grow and deal with things. I think what COVID has shown us over the last year is that everyone is dealing with something and we feel an accountability to take care of our people. So now that we're in 2021, thank goodness, what do you see as having great potential to continue improving this, you know, not only being in tune with the health of your employees and the mental health, but being able to improve the reaction to people who need help and provide those services to them? Yeah, I'd say the first thing is that the role of leadership has never been more important. And in 2021 and beyond, we will look to our leaders to really understand the health and well-being of their teams, to understand what they need to do to help their people play to their best. The second thing is, I think, The cadence of communication for all companies has to increase. And especially as you go through tough times, I think technology has now shown us that it's so much easier. We don't have to be together in a room, but we need to be able to come together and to listen. And I think that connects to the third point, which is we can leverage technology to understand where our people are at. And we can do that via the understanding of the sentiment that they're sharing, the questions that they have, the challenges, and we will work, you know, continue to work really hard to ensure that trust and storytelling is at the center of everything that we do. What we're hearing from Cisco is something that we're hearing more and more from other companies as well. And this is a really new conversation for corporate leaders to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a major shift in the culture from tough it out 
work the hours necessary to, we hear you, we see you, you might need help and that's okay. And in fact, we're going to get more value out of you if you're in the right mental space and, you know, getting the help you need. And if there's a silver lining, I think, or one silver lining from all the trauma of the past year, it's that it's only put more emphasis on having this conversation. Yeah. And I think another small little hint of optimism maybe is that the more we talk about this, about mental health issues, the less stigma there will be in the future. So that is it for today. If you or anyone you know needs help or is in crisis, we've listed some resources in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. The music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Megan Arnold and Mason Cohn. Thank you.